0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn there in to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and I do encourage you, even if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one in the few back in front of you, grab your phone, flip over there, click over there, whatever you got to do. Grab a friend. Some of you got friends. Grab one of those, sit next to them. Uh, join us in Acts chapter 13 because we're going to be working our way through that entire chapter, and I want to make sure you can follow along with us as we do so. Last week, we finished up a sermon series in the book of James, and I've been looking forward to getting back to the book of Acts. Acts is a book that is a narrative. It's a story that unfolds for us, whereas James was a letter, and so we had to navigate that a little Differently, we went through that with some smaller sections of Scripture at times because there was a richness. Again, it was was a letter written to a group of people with a purpose. The book of Acts is a story that unfolds, and so, yes, we can move through it in larger chunks because we see big ideas illustrated through the narrative and through the story. So don't be alarmed. Yes, there are a number of verses in Acts 13. We're going to work all the way through it, but we won't be here all afternoon, Lord willing. If you are newer to our church family, you're probably caught off guard uh, that we're parachuting into the middle of a book like this. Um, This is not our normal way of navigating through Scripture. We kind of walk through books beginning to end, but Acts is such a large book that we've kind of went through this in episodes. And so, uh, actually, for those of you who were here some time ago, you may remember that my first sermon here was from the book of Acts. And that was our very first sermon series, Acts chapter 1. I believe we went through chapter 7, and uh, y'all were bearing with me as I was learning how to preach week by week. And uh, we made it through those seven chapters. Then we took a break, and then last year went back to Acts chapter 8 and went through chapter 12 and pick up now. At Acts chapter 13. A lot has happened in this book to bring us to chapter 13, and I'm gonna do my best to kind of get you up to speed of what all has happened in these 12 chapters. And so uh, you may remember Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. So it's, it's a critical verse. If, if there's a verse in Acts you want to underline, circle, highlight, whatever, Acts 1-8 is that verse. And here's why. Acts 1-8 provides an outline for the book of Acts. So in other words, if you understand the content of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you understand how the whole story is going to unfold. Let me explain this to you. Let me read the verse first of all. Acts 1.8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1-8, again, is an outline of this book. Notice with me the first phrase. Well, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, Luke writes. In Acts chapter 2, we find the event of Pentecost. We looked at that a couple of years ago together as this is the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, we find the second part of this outline unfold when he says, you will be my witnesses... Jerusalem, And so as you walk through those seven chapters, you see the gospel penetrating that city. You see the church is focused intently by God's leadership in the city of Jerusalem. It has not spread, so to speak. But then in Acts 8 through 12, something interesting begins to happen. The gospel begins spreading into Judea and Samaria, which if you look back at verse 8, it says... Not just Jerusalem, but in all Judea and Samaria. You find in chapter 8 and verse 4 that it says there, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the gospel. I love that picture that these anonymous witnesses, because of persecution, they went on their way preaching the gospel. Then we find also Philip, and he's ministering there. And then, of course, in chapter 9, we find that Damascus Road experience for Paul and his conversion which gets us to chapter 11 and verse 26. Look at that verse with me, if you will. It's just one page over, probably from where you are in chapter 13. Listen to this. It says, For a whole year they met with the church, and they taught large numbers. Listen to this. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And so, All of God's activity in these first 12 chapters seems to culminate at this place called Antioch. This place where God is going to uniquely bless this church. This place where God is going to uniquely commission this church to go to the ends of the earth. Which is what we find from chapter 13 all the way through the end of the book of Acts. Here's what I want you to understand. All the way up until this point, the church was on mission, but it seems as though they were on mission by accident. That's critical. They were on mission by accident. Here's what I mean by that. Persecution was causing them to take the gospel elsewhere, right? It wasn't their intentional activity. It wasn't as if they had a great idea one day and said, you know what? God said to go, so we should go. No, they were being persecuted, so they went, And then we find that even in situations like Philip, God is supernaturally working in Philip's life and moving him place to place so he can minister. Again, it's not Philip's willful activity. God is moving these individuals to share the gospel. But something's going to change beginning right here in Acts 13. We're going to begin to see that the church is now intentionally on mission. The title of the sermon this morning is On Mission, on purpose. No longer is it something that's happening by accident, if you will. It's intentional. It's on purpose. Note this, the, the main idea of this entire chapter. God built his church so they can purposefully take part in his mission to reach the nations. God built his church, not so they should be entertained, Not so they could be encouraged. Not so they could enjoy a good time together. Not so they could kind of huddle up and be safe from these outside influences. No, God built his church so they could purposefully take part in his mission to reach the nations. So beginning here in Acts 13, we see a church that is now intentionally taking part in God's mission to reach the world with the gospel. And here's my hope. As we see them do this, as we see them galvanize around the mission of God, my hope and my prayer is that we, as God's people, see this as our purpose as well. No longer is mission going to accidentally take place in the church. No, it will intentionally take place in the church. Would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. I'm just going to read the first three verses to you, and then I'll let you sit back down. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your church to be on mission so that even we, as the church in Cave Spring, could be a part of your family. Lord, I pray you'll use this word in a powerful way. Bless it by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you've got a listening guide from your bulletin there, you will note three purposeful activities of the church taking place when they are on mission. They purposefully worship. They experience purposeful adversity. And they hear purposeful preaching. So first note this, in verses one through three, God speaks to his church through purposeful worship. God speaks to his church through purposeful worship. You see, verse 1 opens with a list of five leaders in the church at Antioch. In this list, we find evidence of God's work in the church thus far. And I, I really want you to see, sometimes lists of names, we kind of get bogged down in that, but I want you to see what these names illustrate for us. First of all, we got Barnabas listed there. He was perhaps the longest standing Christian leader. In this list. He was, he was kind of the, the old guy of the group. He, he, was the, he was the OG. He was the original of this group, and, and he was the one who was kind of anchoring their witness. But then we got Simeon. Now what's interesting about Simeon is he, his second name is of particular interest. Notice that the second name is Niger. This name translated literally means dark complexioned. He was perhaps of African descent. Here's what this tells us. The church was diverse, right? The church had diversity in it, in its family. There was diversity. There was clear evidence that the gospel was already going to places that they had never been before. And yet, God was doing a work. And then there's this guy named Manaean, And the, the note we get there about Manaean is that he was a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Listen, here's what that tells us. Testimony of the gospel had even penetrated into political arenas. It wasn't just a religion for the common people. No, God's gospel had penetrated even the hardest of hearts. Even those that were affluent. Those who seemed to be able to be independent from the gospel. God had penetrated their hearts. And then of course we find Saul. Saul is also called Paul, excuse me. His conversion experience, God had done this work in his life and actually changed his name. And so what we find there is that God had been supernaturally working again on even the hardest of hearts. But here's what we need to see about these men. Leaders must teach and encourage the church. So these leaders are mentioned by name, not just to paint this picture of diversity and paint this picture of of God's witness already. But no, he, he says these are the leaders in the church he calls them specifically here, teachers and prophets. Now, there is a very clear setting apart of these men as leaders in the church. And that's important for us to understand. Why? Because all throughout the New Testament, Paul and others write about leaders that are given as a gift to the church. We find in First and 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul is describing what a leader should look like. Some expectations for godly leadership. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he talks about elders and leaders in the church who have the responsibility of shepherding the flock of God. So God gives the church leaders. This is not very creative. He gives them leaders to lead. That's the purpose. And this isn't something that happens by chance. It's not as if someone with a really gifted personality said, hey, I want to lead this church. No, God says, this is who's going to lead. And the church follows those commands and they set apart these leaders. Second, we see here that believers have a responsibility as well. The church in general, we note this, believers must desire to hear from the Lord. They must desire to hear from the Lord. This is why good leadership in a church is not adequate. You can't just hire the right person. You can't just call the right man. You can't just put certain teachers in place and expect the church to flourish. No, there is an expectation for the people of God. Notice in verse 2, the two activities that are mentioned here. It says, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, did you catch that? And then finally, we find in verse 3, they were praying. So two activities are set apart here for them. Fasting, I'm going to spend just a moment there because we're Baptists, so we don't like to talk about fasting. But this is indeed an intentional activity of setting aside food for a time to focus on hearing from the Lord. I've got some good news for you. You don't find the church doing this all the time in the book of Acts. It's not as if it comes up chapter after chapter after chapter where he's saying, hey, you should be fasting. No, at unique opportunities, at pivotal moments in the church's life, they do set aside food for a time to seek the Lord's face. And each time it's mentioned, it's also mentioned in union with praying. And that's what I really want to focus on. Simple definition of prayer or a simple definition reason why prayer is necessity in our lives. Listen to this. Prayer forces us to slow down and consider our path in light of God's leading. Prayer forces us to stop, to slow down, to take a breath, and to consider what God wants us to do. Here's why that's important for us. We all live a pretty fast-paced life. Even those in this room who think you got a pretty slow-paced life, you're you're moving faster than most. And we like to crowd our lives with all sorts of busyness. We like to crowd our schedules with appointments. We like to crowd our schedules with with activities and and sporting events and family gatherings and things that are a part of our work life. And we talk about having work-life balance. You've heard of that this illusory thing that doesn't really exist, right? Uh, We're busy people. And if we're not careful, we never slow down to consider what God is really doing around us. Prayer forces us to slow down. That's what the church is doing here. They're slowing down. They're taking a moment to consider what the Lord might be doing among them. So notice what happens. As leaders are leading, as God would have them, and the people are seeking the Lord, we find this. The Holy Spirit calls the church to willing sacrifice. The Holy Spirit responds by calling the church to willing sacrifice. Look closer at verse 2. He says, The Holy Spirit, the Lord, says to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. End quote. Now, we're not exactly... Told how this happens. We don't know if it's writing on the wall, if it's an audible voice, or, or one of the teachers stands up and says, hey, this is what the Lord's saying to us. We don't know how it happens. But here's what we do know. God speaks to His people, and they listen. Very simple. I'm going to say it one more time. God speaks to His people, and they listen, or they respond. God inaugurates the missionary activity of the church. He tells them, listen, this is how you're going to be a part of this. And more importantly, he says it's going to be a sacrifice. Understand these names mentioned here, Paul and Barnabas, where else do you find them? Just a verse later? Earlier, rather, they're the leaders in the church. They're those that have been serving with them for a year. This was a painful thing for them to do, to say, okay, God, We're going to send them out. So he calls them to a willing sacrifice. God desires to speak just as clearly to us today as he did then. The notion that we hold his word before us testifies to that truth. We should hold leaders accountable, hold me accountable to leading as the Lord would have us to lead. We should seek the Lord as a body of believers and pray and ask for his leadership. And so they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas, they send them out. But things begin to get interesting as they leave the comfort of Antioch. So notice this, God demonstrates his power through purposeful adversity. By the time we get to to verse 4 down through verse 12, we find that they are in their first place of ministry. Verses 4 and 5, they tell about the journey that got them to the place where they were about to minister. But what I want you to hear from Scripture is verses 6 through 8. Look at that with me. It says, When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, it says. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them. He tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Make note of a couple of things in these few verses. First of all, you never know who is watching you in adversity. You never know who's watching you in adversity. We find a couple of characters mentioned here. First of all, there's this gentleman named Sergius Paulus. It says that he's a pro, the member of the proconsul, and it also says he's an intelligent man. Two things said about him that set him apart from everyone else. And then there's this other guy. His name is Bargesus or Alamis. You say, well, what's this guy? What's the big deal with him? Well, his name simply means son of Jesus <laughs> or son of Joshua. And it also says that he was a sorcerer or a deceiver. Now, of these two men, which one would you think would want to listen to this supernatural retelling of the gospel? The guy who was the Jewish person, right? He, he would be the one who would want to hear all about this gospel. He would be the one who would want to hear more about what these prophets and teachers had to say. But what do we find instead? Who listened? This guy named Sergius Paulus, this guy who was in charge, it says he was intelligent. It says he was educated. And it would seem that this person would be the very person who would push back against this supernatural retelling of the gospel. This this story of a man who was once dead but now alive, it would seem like this person would have enough sense to push back against the gospel. But instead, through this event, God works And he works on this heart of this political leader. You never know who's watching you in adversity. You never know. I remember when we were in the Philippines, we experienced our our first typhoon. A typhoon is just simply a a really big hurricane that happens in the Pacific Ocean. So we don't hear about these very often. I just knew to be afraid of them. It was a big deal. A typhoon was a scary thing. That's all we knew about it. But I remember this typhoon bearing down on us, and it would have been like the equivalent of a Category 4 hurricane. So this thing was going to wipe everything out. And I remember sitting there in the bed at night with the kids on a mattress in the floor, and and we hear the storm ripping through. And it it seemed like all night this storm came through our village. At the end of it, I, I, I peeked out the window, and I saw that everything looked fine. There were some trees down in the yard, but... It didn't seem like there was much damage. The roof was still on the house. Things appeared to be really good, and so I was excited. I told Shresa, "Man, this is good stuff. We we, we survived this thing." But then uh, she said, "Well, look out this window," and she directed my attention to a room, a window across the room, and a tree had fallen onto our truck, our only means of transportation, and I was furious. I was so excited one moment, and then I was furious the next, and Cherie's nodding her head. She remembers what happened that night. I, I'm a hat thrower when I get mad. Anybody else a hat thrower? Y'all know who you are, right? You're a hat thrower. I mean, you're going to chunk that thing, right? And, and I was so mad. I was wearing a Georgia baseball cap. I remember because Georgia, Georgia was playing that night, and I was watching it online before the storm hit. And I threw this hat across the room. I didn't say anything unkind, but I was clearly very angry. Shri immediately jerked my arm, and she pulled me into the bedroom, And I remember under candlelight her looking at me and she said, your kids are watching you. Your kids are watching you. You never know who's watching you in adversity. You see, Paul and Barnabas were in the middle of this very difficult situation. They were confronted by this gentleman who was opposing everything that they had to say. And yet, God was working through that adversity to tell the story of who they were and who Jesus was to this man who they didn't expect to be really listening close at all. But then we look at verses 9 through 12. Not only should we remember who's watching us, but you can't forget who is with you in adversity either. You can't forget who's with you. In verses 9 through 12, we find the retelling of how Paul confronts this sorcerer and and basically tells him to get lost. He curses him, in fact. And this man is struck with blindness. What I want you to see is in verse 9. There's a, a phrase that you probably would read over very quickly, but I want you to see it. It says, But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, The reason he was able to walk through this adversity was because God was with him. And here's the truth for us, church. That same God is with us. So as you walk through difficulty, don't forget who is with you. Whether in illness or anxiety, isolation or sorrow, or feelings of inadequacy, don't forget the Holy Spirit of God that lives in you. So the church, they... Hear from the Lord in purposeful worship. And then they see that he's with them in purposeful adversity. But finally note this. God saves the lost through purposeful preaching. He saves the lost through purposeful preaching. Now verses 13 through 15, they tell the story of the missionary group. They're moving to their next place of ministry. They're moving to another place called Antioch, different from the first one. And beginning in verse 16, all the way through verse 41, Paul is preaching his first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And I can already see it on some of your faces. You're thinking, he's got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Listen, I'm not going to preach Paul's sermon to you. It's a great sermon. I encourage you to go read it. In fact, it would only take three minutes to read Paul's sermon from beginning to end. No, that does not mean that all preaching should take just three minutes. Here's what it means, though. It means that what we have here in Acts chapter 13 is a retelling of this sermon, kind of like an outline form of the big ideas, kind of a structure of what a sermon should look like. And so here's the question I want us to answer together. What does purposeful preaching sound like? What should you be listening for in preaching? And I hope, I hope that you've heard some of this already. Surely over the last two years, you've heard it at least once. But, but four different characteristics of purposeful preaching. Here they are. Number one, God's sovereignty is clear. This word sovereign, you've heard me use it a lot. And I define it every time for a reason because there's new people in the room. Listen, here's what it means. God is sovereign. That means God's in control. God's in charge. Nothing happens by accident. And here's where we see this happening all throughout this sermon. Listen, God is the subject of nearly every verb that Paul speaks in this sermon. He says, God did this, and God did that. And guess what? Surprise, God did this too. Notice with me, look very closely at verse 17 for an example of this. Again, I'm not reading the whole sermon, but look at verse 17. The God of this people Israel, look, he chose our ancestors... He made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and he led them out with a mighty arm. Again and again, all throughout this sermon, you find God on the move. You find that God is the main character of this. In fact, 16 different times, Paul illustrates how God is the chief actor in history. You see, according to Paul and according to the Bible, nothing in human history happens by chance. Nothing is random because God is not a God of random. He is a God of purpose. We are not lucky people. We are blessed people. Purposeful preaching makes this clear, that God is sovereign. He is in control. But secondly, note this. God's grace is available in purposeful preaching. Look with me at verse 18. Paul is preaching and he says, and for about 40 years, I love this, he put up with them. You ever just put up with somebody? You know what I'm talking about. Those of you with kids, you you know that your, your kids would probably get a whooping every five minutes if it wasn't for your grace and you were putting up with them, right? That's the picture here of God. God is gracious and he is kind. He's putting up with them. Look further at verse 26. Notice what he says. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race and those among you who fear God, It is to us that the word of salvation has been sent. It is God's gracious activity that has made the gospel available to you and I. This leads us to a third characteristic of purposeful purposeful preaching. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. From verse 26 down through verse 38, the attention is given solely to Jesus and his activity. We see that in Jesus, every promise is fulfilled. In Jesus, his death has paid the penalty of sin. And in Jesus, the resurrection has proved the work of the cross sufficient. Jesus is the chief character in the story. Purposeful preaching should lead us to Jesus. I love how Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I have never yet found a text that does not have a road to Christ in it. Whether it be in the Old Testament or the New, Jesus is written on the pages of the Bible. I hope that is clear in purposeful preaching. Finally, purposeful preaching leads to a call for response. Response is necessary when preaching is purposeful. Now, I want to be very transparent with you. This is where I feel most inadequate as a preacher. This is where I, I tend to, when I go back and I critique my preaching, this is where I f- feel that I fail the most. You see, it's one thing to paint this picture of God's grace. It's one thing to paint this picture that is so clear in the Bible that God is sovereign, he's in control. It's one thing to say that Jesus is the hero of the story. But we have to call for response. It's necessary. Paul does this in verses 38 through 41. For sake of time, I won't read that to you, but basically what he says is this. Here's the gospel. Do something with it. You've got a choice to make about who Jesus is. Perhaps it's because preachers fear the results of preaching that they fail to call for a response. If I'm honest with you, it's that I fear the results of the preaching if I'm calling for a response. It's that I fear that the results won't be what I want them to be. And so let's look at what should result when preaching is purposeful. Let's answer that question together. In the text, beginning in verse 42, we begin to see the results of preaching. Verses 42 through 44, we see that some of those listening, they begin to grow in their faith. Notice with me, verse 42. It says, As they were leaving, this is after the sermon was done, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. In other words, they said, we can't get enough of this. We want to hear more and more and more. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now, I encourage you, don't follow me home today. I want to have some peace and quiet. But for Paul and Barnabas, these people were kind of at their coattails. They were saying, tell us more about this gospel. Tell us more about this Jesus. We want to hear more about it. It says in verse 44, the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? They loved growing in this word so much that they invited everyone in the town to come hear more about it. Some are going to grow in their faith. But unfortunately, the result we encounter often is found in verse 45. Some will oppose the call to repentance. Some will oppose the call to repentance. One verse tells us this story. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Listen carefully. Paul was filled with the Spirit, but they were filled with jealousy. Even more troubling, those who knew the Bible best, notice who it was, it was the Jewish leaders that opposed them. Those who knew the Bible best resisted the message most fiercely. I love how they respond in verses 46 and 47. Look at that. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles for this is what the Lord has commanded of us. So note this, some will repent and believe. So there's some that are going to grow, there's some that are going to resist, and there's some that are going to actually repent and believe. It says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and they honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life, they believed. God does a work through their adversity and through the rejection of the Jewish leaders to open a door for gospel witness. These Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, the people who you would have thought would have rejected the gospel, they were watching and they were listening. And they heard this word and they believed. This leads us to the final verses in this chapter. Verses 49 through 52, we find that the word of the Lord began to spread throughout the region. We find that God is blessing the proclamation of the word again and again and again verse 50, but the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women. I don't know who these folks are, but they sound scary. And the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. The hostility was fierce, but Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. They kept going on the mission. They would not be deterred In their purposeful preaching, verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Listen, some are going to want to grow in their faith. Some are going to resist the call to repentance. Some are going to repent and believe, but nevertheless, don't miss this. Our joy is unwavering. Our joy is unwavering. I hope you hear in my voice, I'm preaching to myself a little bit this morning. No matter the response, our joy has to be unwavering. Listen, joy is not fleeting. Happiness may come and go, but joy remains forever. I want you to think about the last thing you did on purpose that had good results. The last thing you did on purpose that had good results. It's not hard for me to think about this. We've got five wonderful kiddos in our home. Us getting to church on Sunday morning is a good result. And it's gotta be done on purpose. Last night if you walked into our children's bedrooms and in our bedroom you saw clothes neatly laid out. You know who you are, you got a lot of kids, y'all are nodding your head. This is what you do, you lay your clothes out, you get ready for the next day. You make sure that everything's in order. The coffee maker is set to to go off at a certain time and start brewing the coffee, right? You know what's coming the next morning. There can't be any surprises. And so you have a good result. Listen carefully, church. If we're going to be on mission and have a good result, we got to do it on purpose. It takes a purposeful and intentional effort by the people of God to seek Him in purposeful worship. To listen for His voice as we gather together. It, it takes us walking through difficulty and adversity and saying, God's got a purpose in this. and Not being deterred because of the adversity. No, but continuing on in the mission. And Listen. It means that when you sit under the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, you listen with a purpose. Most importantly, if you're going to do all these things on purpose, you've got to make an intentional decision to know Jesus as your Savior. Before a church goes on mission, the church has to know Jesus. You say, well, wait a minute, we're all here this morning together, we all know Jesus, not necessarily true. Where was Paul and Barnabas teaching? It says they were teaching in the synagogue. A synagogue would be kind of like a first century church setting. And it was in the synagogue that they proclaimed the gospel and it says that some believed but many opposed. Listen carefully. As we sit in this room together, there are some in this room, without a doubt, who don't know Jesus as their Savior. Don't take that for granted. Consider your position before Christ carefully. And if you don't know him, Whether you've been here for five minutes or 55 years, know this Jesus as your Savior.